0: you're listening to two guys talking wine with michael pincus and andre prue michael andre i'd like to tell you something i did it again well you did but but first i would like to say that to get over it i am tonight i am using your influence
1: what's that mean Are you wearing a floral pretty... track jacket?
0: No, actually, that floral track jacket is showing up everywhere. It's like a it's like a bad penny that you've got going on.
1: Yeah, something like that. It's definitely my favorite jacket. I keep getting tagged, and people call it my favorite jacket, but that's not a lie. It is my favorite jacket. I, go to I think at you uh, said that. go to at Andre Weiner if you want to see some photos of uh, me oh God, in a very jacket. bright floral track jacket.
0: It 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 is it is one of those things that uh, I have never seen somebody so thrilled to see somebody get canceled so they could continue wearing Adidas.
1: <laughs> I actually got text messages from some of my friends when the whole Kanye West thing was going down. It was just like, what are you going to do? I'm wearing an Olympic Leonid track jacket right now as we speak. I have Adidas socks. I have like three or four Adidas hoodies. It's just I really like the brand. and it's just I, You like, know what? I can't, I can't abide by, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that, uh, that they canceled Kanye. Like, I'm sorry. Anti-Semitism is something that is, is just does not, does not like, there's no room for that in, in 2022 or
0: ever. Look, the guy we had on the podcast, Krister Bicklum, uh, from Norway was, is also a huge fan of Adidas to the point where he found something that he could only get in Canada, reached out to me and said, is there any way you can get this to me? So, um, you know, Adidas is a is a very popular brand, obviously, and uh, it's loved around the world. And uh, you know, I could I couldn't be happier that they finally went. You know what, Kanye, go screw yourself. Uh, All right, you're... we're
1: way we're way off topic on this here. This is but, a what, long. But, but
0: your in, your influence sits in front of the uh, in. All oh, right, we uh, forgot about in a that glass <laughs> in front of me. Um, it's a it's a now it's not what you drink. You're a bourbon drinker. But uh, it turns out that uh, I am a Irish whiskey fan. And to get me through this next podcast, I needed a healthy three-finger shot of, uh, a, I think this one's a Bushmill. And it's mm. and it's my third whiskey of the night. So there you go.
1: Oh, it's been one of those kind of days. Um, I am going to apologize to the listeners when I opened this up. Um, this is a podcast I worked really hard on. I want to thank Melissa Pulvermacher and Charles Baker. For receiving us at Stratus, which also runs Crew Wine Merchants, which we talk about at the podcast. I won't spend a ton of time on that. Uh, We had a chance to sit down with, I'm not going to say who, because we say it off the top of the podcast, uh, with a winemaker who makes, a Canadian who makes wine in Australia, and I forgot some equipment at home. So this is two weeks in a row where you're listening to a podcast where I had to throw phones on the table. So if you're listening in your car, I apologize uh, Michael and I will work to find a system where this doesn't happen again. Um, I'm not feeling great about it because I was really, really looking forward to this interview. And the reason why we're uh, salvaging it and airing it is I think this is one of the best interviews that we've done. Um, do you want? What do you yeah, want to I, say to me before you throw me under the bus
0: here? I think we're just going to have to put microphones uh, in our pockets and uh, cords in our socks. Just so that things aren't forgotten from now on.
1: Well, I mean, after the last podcast, um, our supporter, Ken Little, um, reached out to me to ask me if I had a Zoom recorder. And here's the thing is I have a Zoom recorder in a drawer. I just need to repair it. And it's one of those things where if I had that in the car, it would fix things. So I'm going to work on, on on fixing that um, over the holidays so that this doesn't happen again um, well, I, I
0: have one of those eye rigs that we uh, that we used to use. Yeah, and we years just stopped. And, and yeah,
1: and we stopped carrying. Them. I mean, that's the thing is, if we had the eye rigs, we would have. Yeah. Anyways, um, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Let's roll this tape. There we go. Welcome to dysfunctional wine with Andre Pru and Michael Pincus. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try something different because um, one of my favorite journalists has been popping up on my YouTube feed again. And that's Nardwuar the, the human.
2: Oh, <laughs> the human Surette. the the human suriet. Who who are you? <laughs> well, who am I? God, that's one of those. Ex, you know, that's
0: an existential question. That's, if a, I've ever that's heard what of.
2: I was trying to look on. I honestly, I've always referred to myself as the Canadian at large. I've been in Australia for decades, but as you can tell, you can't see me on the podcast. But I look like a redneck Canadian. I don't you think are. You
1: do. I don't think you do. You are Brad Ray. I'm Brad Ray. But you, and you the, are the owner
2: of Zante's Footstep. Well, actually, you know what? I'm not the owner. The bank is. And uh, I'm very yeah. clear Good about point. that one. Good Let point. me tell you. Good point. I am. I am the indentured servant of the bank of Zante's Footstep. Got it. <laughs> well, I, I just to be honest with you, yeah. we'll take a picture of him.
0: I don't think he looks like. A, well, there are much more rednecky rednecks out there.
2: Oh well, thank.
0: Did you. Did you come in a pickup?
2: I usually, well, I drive a pickup. Correct. But that's back in Australia. <laughs> I come came in a Volvo. Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> and Welcome you came you in a Volkswagen. Wagon, eh. And I came in
0: a Hyundai. So, uh, there you yeah, go. there's no redneck. Eh. So, we are at Stratus
1: in Niagara. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing a lot of people listening to this podcast may or may not know is that there are some wineries who also own wine agencies
0: Correct. in the area. So, Henry Pelham owns Family Wine Merchant, and Stratus owns Her- Crew Wine Her- Merchant. Yep. Something to do with wine merchants that I'm not sure could be okay. So, uh, so we're here with with Brad, and um, we have tasted through uh, our first lineup of. Wines. We haven't even really gotten to where Brad is. No, from. no, but, we know he's from. But, but, but what I, what I'd like to do first of all, because we, we I we we've already tasted through the the whites. Let's go through these wines, and then let's go through history. Let's try a different approach to to this because. Once again, we are recording on phones. Thank you, Andre. And um, Okay, so,
1: so just we, real quick to the listeners who reached out to offer me advice on equipment and whatnot.
0: Like, bring it would be a good one.
1: I left ah. two microphones at home. I forgot a USB cable. Correct. We had all the power we, could, we could, uh, could plug into this time. So I apologize to the listeners that this is two episodes in a row where we're dealing with technology malfunctions. And this is destiny because... In the episodes leading up to this,
0: we were talking about how happy we are that we have all the equipment that we need yeah, to record so, really good punches. So now, obviously, we're going to have to get a second set of equipment the just to have it backup. as a backup and, like, put it in our sock.
2: Yeah, something small.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, let's... Brad, let's just talk really quickly through sure. these, these white wines, and then we'll get into some history. Yeah. Uh, we first tried a Prosecco, yeah. uh, which is called Prosecco... The grape is called Prosecco mm-hmm. in Australia. It's glara. Good for
1: you, Michael. That's the first time you mentioned that Brad's
0: wines are from Australia. Well, that's fine. You'll it's f- called burying the lead. We'll figure it out as we go. So um, you were just telling us the story about how you ended up making
2: Prosecco. Well, I guess the, the big thing for us as a brand is it, our, our, our whole ethos is about trying to be educational without being boring. It's about showcasing the relationship of the grape variety with the soils that we are actually paying for or trying to focus on wine styles that are, you know, forefront within the marketplace and trying to enlighten people to some of the shady things that go on within the commercial wine industry around the world. So, to me, talking about Prosecco is trying to make that really lovely, fresh aperitif style that Prosecco is. It's not method traditionnel. It's got a different purpose. You know, my experience and background of drinking Prosecco and actually tasting it when I'm over there is that it's served as an aperitif. It's an acidulove. In Spain, you drink cherry. In Italy, you start off with a bit of Prosecco. Get the acid going, have a little bit of light, you know, salty hamon or prosciutto wrapped around a crassini stick, and then you get going. To me, it's about brightness, fruit drive, and, and the expression of the grape varieties, Clara slash Prosecco, and a little bit of our Pinot Gris. We actually follow where I, the other wines aren't, this one I follow recipe winemaking to a tee. So it's trying to actually emulate what the actual DO has to say about how this wine is made. We make sure that it's nine atmospheres or nine bars of pressure. It's Charmant fermented. We're using 95% of the Galera slash Prosecco, 5% Pinot Gris to add a little bit of texture and varietal lift to it. Doing so, that allows me to have a talking point with you guys about what's going on in the global market and why we're having this discussion on a global level in regards to the name of the grape. You can't trademark a grape. Our, our, our label is actually Zante's Footstep. It's actually named after the first grape variety that was planted in the vineyard in Langloin Creek, which was a Zante's. But you cannot use the name of a grape variety on a wine label unless it's contained within that bottle. Now, for me. When Australia imported all these cuttings, we actually bought them as Prosecco grape cuttings, Glara, and under that right, we should be able to call it Prosecco. I'm not trying to impinge upon or deflate what they have been doing in Italy for years and years, but I think that has actually bolted now, and we should accept the fact that Prosecco is a global wine grape variety. So can you put Prosecco on the label and still export Absolutely. There's countries like Singapore who has sided with the Italian Grape Commission and they will only allow Prosecco to come in from Italy. The LCBO, and I won't put words in their mouth, but I understand their relationship is that they won't bring it into Australia or into Canada because they don't want to stir the pot. They're not sitting on the fence, nor are they agreeing or disagreeing with that function. There are a few other countries that are the same where they've sided with the Italian Commission.
1: So. Are, there, are there other wineries um, in Australia or elsewhere that are putting Prosecco on the
2: bottle? Oh, massive. We have a massive production of Prosecco. In the King Valley, that's the largest planting of the Glara slash Prosecco grape in the Southern Hemisphere. So a group of, of growers there, they actually banded together and planted the largest planting of the grape variety, Prosecco or Glara in the Southern Hemisphere, and almost double that of what it is back in the homeland in Italy. Hmm. So that was Pizzini. Um, Del Zotto there's about seven of them so they run this large regional program in the King Valley of making Prosecco.
0: So the LCBO comes to you and they say we want to put your Prosecco on our shelf, you just have to change the name do you do it?
2: Geez, well that's a conundrum in the half so as you've seen on our labels when we started out our very first um, wines that we produced were Shiraz Viognier and Viognier because I wanted to express something different than what Australia tended to do. We were the number one selling skew in the UK market at that time, and the next year, we didn't sell a bottle because someone in the Languedoc-Roussillon just emulated that wine style and did it at half the price. And that's where I actually went back to what I was taught from the other wineries I worked at and give your wines names, because then you own them. They're like your children. You know, my these you are my wine now. babies. That's yeah. what you saying. Yeah. excellent. You know, they're wine babies. Every yeah. one of them has a personality. So that's why I've given them names. And with this latest label change, it's actually given them face. So you're like Apple. You well, your own children. No, but
1: that's similar to what, uh, <laughs> that's actually similar, I didn't, hadn't thought about it, but it's similar to what I do with the, uh, with the ADX wine company that, that I run. Our wines all have names. Our Rose's called One Pigs Fly.
2: Well, then the, no one else can actually make One Pigs Fly. That's, that's right. People. And our uh, our Chardonnays
1: called Damn Chardonnay. No one else can make Damn Chardonnay. I was just, yeah. just having fun with you. Hey, hey, hey. own children. Yeah, just like yeah. Apple. So <laughs> anyway, right. but I mean, you talking about about making grape varieties that are not Australia is not as well known for. So let's go through the other three whites quickly because I know we've got sure. a mountain of, of Shiraz Which and I Noir Really looking to because really we've tried our kind of before. Our second wine was a Sauvignon Ex- Blanc from Adelaide Hills. Excalibur, yes, and um, and then Vermentino. it's really it's really it's really fascinating because like I think there's a, a really sharp divide in the market right now. Stylistically, of Old World and New Zealand, and you've somehow managed to hit both boxes because the nose on this is extremely New Zealand, extremely Kiwi in style, but the moment it's in your mouth,
0: it's like being transported to a ripe part of France. I, but I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that question just for a quick second and ask how long the bottle's been open. Oh, that's a good question. Two days. Two days. Uh, So I'm going to assume you are probably, and I could be wrong here, I
2: think you're trying to emulate the New Zealand style? Absolutely not. No. That's absolutely not what I'm doing. What I'm trying to do is showcase Adelaide Hills Sauvignon Blanc. A big thing for us in Australia is we have this wet rebate tax. So as a producer of wine, for the first $1.8 million that you make in sales, the government will give back that 29% to help you subsidize your business. Under our, our laws, the Kiwis can sell $1.8 million worth of wine in Australia and claim back that same wet rebate. But don't forget that the exchange rate on the Australian to the Kiwi dollar right now is about 20 cents on the dollar. So they can make 29% on the rebate plus 20% on the exchange rate and make 49% gross at cost of production. So even today, the latest Nielsen figures back in July 7 out of 10 bottles of wine sold in Australia are New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc because we can't compete with them at a price point.
1: So so why do it then? Like, what, are you, what are you doing? What's, one, what's your, what's your competitive it advantage?
2: So it doesn't look like Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. I want it to look like what comes out of the Adelaide Hills. So for me, it's that white blossom sort of lemon curd characteristic. I'm also pushing against that commercial manufacturing of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I'm not going to name names, but if you look at the residual sugar contents of some of the more entry-level products, it's manufactured product. And what I'm making is actually a Sauvignon Blanc that's led by different wine techniques. So I worked in the Loire for a few vintages, and under that I learned that the fact that some of the producers there re-acidify using green juice. So instead of doing the new world thing about shoveling citric, tartaric, malic, or you know acids out of bags, we'll actually harvest some of our Sauvignon Blanc a little bit early and use that to readjust our acids. To me, it's about acid rails. That's the Excalibur. That'd be where It'd the long rapier
0: lines. That'd also be where the green notes I was getting on the nose would come from as well. Correct. Gotcha. So, so I, I would be interested in uh, and, and can, not but I'm just—I would be interested in trying that wine fresh out of the bottle to see where it where it leans. Uh, too, because I do get I do get the, do get the meso- lean on the nose, but I also get that soft palate, yeah. which, which had very little acidity which has dropped off over the last two days huh. not your fault it's just you know I still, the, I
1: still thought the acid was, was nicely balanced to it but I mean I, it's not as searing as what you would expect from a Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc yeah. or from a Niagara Blanc. Correct but it's, it's got a nice
2: flavor to it even and two remember, days remember with Australia we don't have minerality in our okay, so. so that oyster shell that you see in there that sort of emulation that's coming from that early harvest also Interesting. That emulation is that dusty chalky acid structures from that early fruit pick
0: so wine number three was uh, Vermentino, which I think I asked you right off the hop, yep. why Vermentino, which then uh, got us to go, all right, got to record this now, sure. which then led to a 20-minute, oh, shit, I forgot
2: everything.
1: Yeah, thanks for throwing me awesome.
0: under the bus again. So
2: two reasons for Vermentino. As I explained to you, I make the regionality of Shiraz to showcase that Shiraz just doesn't look all the same. Number two, I try and experiment with as many Mediterranean varieties as I possibly can, And the penny drop for me when I was actually doing vintage in Europe was in those Mediterranean countries like Spain, Portugal, and Italy, Greece. A little bit of skin contact and phenolic content is actually beneficial to the wine. It adds depth and complexity, texture, and mouthfeel. But if you do that in the northern part of Europe, a.k.a. Germany, you know, Chardonnay, and other varieties like that, phenolic content is bitter, acrid, and off-putting. So for me, it's showcasing something I can make that's a little bit more food friendly, more acidulative. Vermentino has the same flavor profiles. If you look at the Sauvignon Blanc and that, they're both in that citrus spectrum, a little bit of grapefruit peel. You know, the the name Lady Marmalade for me is the fact that it is actually that. It's three fruits, roses, marmalade. It's got a bit of tangerine skin, grapefruit, lemon. This- it this, was
0: citrus, but definitely like yeah. sweet citrus.
1: This
2: this of, of the four wines we
0: tried was my favorite of, of the of the four. Yeah, I mean yeah, the the t- tangerine tangerine notes were intense.
1: Wine. Like it, it it reminded me of Christmas. Like it was it was like opening up a tan, like open up a tangerine out of your stocking and you get a little bit
2: of that So too. If you look at the home of Vermentino, we're all gonna say Sardinia, right? Little rock in the middle of the Mediterranean, beaten down by sun, covered with salt. I'm going, okay, this might work with our heat, our climate, our temperature, our soil profile, and position. Also, I planted it because of the surge in the last eight years of bloody Provence rose. So, what is Vermentino called in Provence? Roll. And most roses out of the Provence area contain that Greek Friday. That interesting. And a little bit of Grenache. So, for me, it's actually showing the adaptability and that conversation about the.
0: And then you have the rosé, which I think is, I don't think we have to really go into too much. Yeah, Cab yeah. and grenache.
2: Yep. Yeah. So grenache from McLarenville, Cabernet Sauvignon from the Langhorne Creek. Cabernet offers all that lovely sort of licorice, fresh fennel leaf, a little bit of, uh, you know, tarragon. It's got a little bit of macerated cassis, berry fruit. Grenache is grenache. And at McLarenville, we grow beautiful grenache. It gets bright, macerated summer berry fruits. And for me, that complexity that I blend together gives you a more complete, interesting palette and structure. Both stainless steel fermented. Actually, everything that you see there, that's all it is.
0: So it's lovely. And then, so now, since we didn't do it at the beginning, tell us a little bit of Zante's.
2: So Zante's Footstep started off with 13 people back in 2003 off of a vineyard that we all bought in 1999. And it was always about discussion and learning and exploration for me my push was always to make wines that over delivered at price point that were food friendly and that were easy for people to get into and explore and expand their thought process about what wine should actually be brad
1: you're a canadian i am from calgary yep why australia like you're so much closer to the okanagan you're closer to washington you're closer to oregon you're closer to california don't forget how old
2: i am so I was involved with one of the very first private wine shops back in the 80s. So J-Web wine, wine Merchants in Calgary. Back in those days, those liquor licenses were basically given to us, and under the way they were written, Richard and Janet and myself, I was employed. They were the owners. We imported wines that weren't carried by the liquor board, so we became importers. We scoured the world buying wines that we found a better value in money than what was being sold by the buyers at the liquor board in the Alberta Liquor Control Board. We sold those wines through retail, but my background, I had worked in restaurants since I was 13, so I actually started looking at selling it to restaurants. One of those loopholes in Alberta at that time was, I could actually access the Alberta Liquor Control Board system and see what the prices were for all the imported wines that the importers were bringing in. So the agents, I could turn to and go, great, you're selling that Windham Oak Cast Chardonnay for $12 a bottle, but you're only paying six eighty five. So if you want me to put that on the Bam Springs Hotel wine list, I want it at $8. And I was a bit of a scab sommelier, is what I guess I'd call myself at that time.
1: Yeah, but you were, you were, you had the interest of the consumers in mind there, it sounds like.
2: Always. At the end of the day, um, you know, we started importing these brands, and that's part of my experience is working for some of these wineries. I worked for Hugo. I worked for Mark Burdell. I did vintage at Isola Elena. I worked at Argyle, and that's how I ended up going and studying in Australia, is because, you know, Roly's business partner was Brian Crozer. Now, Brian Crozer is a bit of an icon in the Australian industry because he was the very first person in Australia to implement refrigeration and winemaking. Actually, refrigeration and winemaking, period, around the world. Now, when I met Brian, I was just dragging hoses, trying to learn about wine, doing what we're doing today on your side of the fence instead of mine. And he was looking at me going, so what do you want to do with yourself? I said, well, you know, I'd love to study winemaking, but right now there's University of Bordeaux, and my French is very poor, as we found out earlier. We did. Yep, I apologize. <clears throat> Number two, uh, you can't study in South Africa because apartheid, and, you know, Canadians can't go down there and study. Number two, three was Davis. And with Davis, that's a whole lot of matzah to go and study there. And then there was... Um, Roseworthy in South Australia, which was all internalized. So I had to quit and relocate And he said, oh, actually there's this new school starting up in Australia called Charles Sturt University, and it's a distance education program. What you do is you need a letter of reference from a winery to actually study. But you can do your your degree while you're working in the industry, come down to your residential schools, and then after five years you'll have a degree in viticulture and winemaking. I'll write you a letter of reference, and I went, really like. I'm that's fantastic. You know, I've just really only met you. I mean, I know of you, and we've had a business relationship. And long story short, wrote me the letter. I posted it off to the school, and about six to eight weeks later, I got a letter back from the dean of the school, Mr. Brian Crozer, who said you have been admitted to the school for study. So he actually wrote himself a letter to me, recommended me to study under him. So I went to school, studied distance education, and basically hip-hopped doing vintage in the Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere while I was doing that for five years.
1: Okay, so is there a moment or a wine, I mean, other than the fact that it's where you were studying, where it was just like, yep, this, this is what I want, this is where I want Absolutely. to be.
2: Absolutely. It's sitting actually in our office in a glass case. There's, there's, there's an old book of viticulture in French from the 1800s. And there's this hand-blown bottle of Chateau Neuf de pape en Chondrieu. And that bottle was opened by Richard Harvey when I was at the store because one of the judge magistrates in Calgary passed away. And there was four bottles of these in the cellar, and they needed it to be appraised. And I remember sitting down with him, and he invited me to actually taste it. And it tasted like an old, rancio, balsamic vinegar. And when we spat it out about 10 minutes later dusty linear line of Syrah plopped up and this stuff was made over a hundred years ago and I went and it's still today the hair is standing up in the back of my neck and I went that's what I want to do I want to do things that outlive me that actually add to people's lives and has that impact I've always been passionate about food I was studying architecture but to me wine wine is from the inside out and, you know, this is the stupidest agriculture in the world. Oh, totally You know what I mean? We invest heavy time and money in growing a product. We get one crack at it. i got to actually put it in a bottle. I have to market it hard against a competitive marketplace in a very saturated market. And from an Australian standpoint, it's got to be big scale for me to be able to do what I do.
1: And if the weather's bad, you have to replant your
2: vineyards and wait three years to deal with them again. Uh... So on that, I mean, before we get to the red wines, I don't agree from an Australian standpoint that there's a good vintage or a bad vintage.
1: We've been saying that on this podcast for years. I, I believe Hold it's on, a, wait, I want has to say about this.
2: I, I believe it's an excuse by producers. You, know, you guys are the wine writers, and, and there's this thing, oh, it's a great vintage from Australia that they talk about, or a great vintage from Burgundy. There's no such thing as a bad vintage. There's a bad choice by a producer to harvest fruit that he's not happy with, or to make wine and then bottle something that he's not happy with and blame Mother Nature. We won't do that. See, I, I would, that's
0: that's from an Australian point of view where it's totally. mostly sunny and, and always nice. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it is similar to what, what we've said though, but maybe from a
1: very Niagara-centric point of view is we need to Get the consumers to get out of the mindset that we have good and bad vintages in Niagara. We have hot vintages and we have cool vintages.
0: We have more, t- well, we also have challenging vintages. 2021 is a very challenging vintage, and I don't care who you. Who you are. Twenty twenty one and twenty nineteen were both challenging vintages, when, but when, we still ended. When you week- see almost three hundred and fifty millimeters of rain over two months, that's a challenging vintage, whether you like it or not. Okay, but we but did they don't get that in Australia. That is not. Okay, going but to they be have their follow-up.
1: own. But they have their own challenges to deal with extreme heat. If you deal with a water. grapevine that is that and is water. blasted too much by heat, the grapevine shuts down, and it will affect your. Ability I
0: I, to get rain I understand through. that, but there are ways Absolutely. to combat that. Over how much rain that. That would, that would fall. Okay, but, but we, I'm not ch- saying that we have bad More vintages. Red. I say we have, you know, just like the Italians say, they have yeah. challenging yeah. vintages. Yeah. We get challenging vintages. Yeah, I but don't the think the get Australians get see as challenging a vintage as that. Yes, water.
2: Brad, I'll let you jump in if you'll, but you'll we agree or want, disagree but we
0: want grapevines
2: to struggle, and you definitely I feel Australia. like I'm sitting around the table with my mate from New Zealand my other mate from Spain. We all experience things differently in our own piece of dirt. Australia is, so where I come from, it's the driest state and the driest continent of the world. We have our own issues. But you have to be a real idiot to grow bad grapes in my neck of the woods. You also have to be extremely dedicated to grow exceptional fruit. Now for me, where I stand in my business and where I come from, you should not bottle something that you're not happy with. There's just no excuse for it. If I was in Burgundy... There's a different choice in a different perspective in a different place. And I guess that's why I say I don't make Australian wines. I make wines in Australia. For me, it's trying to actually transcend those categories or what Mother Nature's actually dictum is and try and come up with something that's more expressive, that's a little bit more delicate, and it has a more conducive sense of place to speak to. Bless you.
1: So you were just just giving instructions to uh, Nick, who is one of the... Find sales reps at CREW Wine Merchants about what wines we're going to be tasting next. Because I I, I know there's a Pinot Noir we're going to get to and We will
2: do the Pinot, and then after that we're going to do a Tempranillo Grenache. Okay. Homage to, again, a couple of Spanish blends. My last name's Ray. It's spelled like Spanish for king. I think there's something in me. Past life. I spent many well, years. I mean, you did
0: just say you want to live, live forever, basically.
2: Absolutely. Well, in there the you glass, go. in somebody's
0: glass. Yeah. So, good. Good.
2: so what we're going to do now is what I refer to as the regionality of Shiraz. So
0: um, I didn't, I didn't mention it because I wanted to get it kind of on the podcast. I yep. when I was in Australia, uh, we were we were talking, and we you always use uh, certain uh, yellow companies as ah, uh, as okay. a punching bag. Yeah, um, I mean, with good reason. Uh, but I remember going to Australia. Uh, and doing a a small tour of Hunter, Canberra, and Orange region. Yep. Uh, those three, and I remember tasting through uh, at a lot of those wineries, and thinking this has this has nothing to do with any of those really jammy Shiraz that you that you pick up. Um, and I'm like, this is this is 100% Syrah. And uh, now I don't know. Whether they were—I can't imagine they were blowing smoke at that time because they were—they were quite angry at points. My understanding is that um, Australia actually had uh, a plan of how they were going to approach the world, and you can tell me whether you heard this or not.
2: I was involved at the twenty twenty five.
0: So, so what ended up happening was uh, they—they approached and they said we're going to show them Shiraz, and then we're going to show them regionality, and then at some point. The big companies such as our friends at those yellow Yellowtail. We get to say Yellowtail. Okay. Uh, went, you know what? We're making too damn much money selling this jammy stuff. Um, we are not going to get behind the regionality part of the whole deal. And we have continued to get Little Penguin and Yellowtail and all those other, you know, ones. Because when I was there, I was tasting Syrah. I was tasting amazing Syrah that I, I would not have ever said. This is Australia. So now I let you speak, as in, um, is, am, I, am I in somewhat of, a, of the right frame of mind from what they told me? Geez, when did you start asking questions like me? Well, because uh,
2: I've, I've learned
0: from you, and I want to get uh, so some those, microphone time.
2: Those brands that you talk about, <laughs> I refer to them as our aircraft carriers. Okay, and They did an amazing job. They came out, they crushed it. They came out, they I launched into the, the global market, and I'm an 18-foot skiff. I'm fast, I'm more reactive, I'm small. And that's how I always describe what we do.
1: I, I, you're, you're talking a bit about marketing and being able to respond to the market. It's something I've, I've found fascinating. I, I still, you know, I know exactly the reason why I picked up my first follow Zante's footsteps and fell in love with your brand, and like, I've been unashamed of that for anyone who follows me on social media, is the labels and the, the price point. But on this podcast, we have made Yellowtail a punchline. We have made Yellowtail a bit of a, a, a punching bag just because as, as people who love really good wine in off-dry, Australian Shiraz is not something that we like to promote to our listeners. Is it a challenge for you to enter a market and try to change the market perception of what Australian Shiraz is? And I know we've got four different ones here, and we're going to talk about the regionality in a moment. But like in terms of... Okay. The thing
2: for me is I love the butt heads. Because that's what wine is. Wine is this conversation that we're having around the table. Everything that we're doing right now, that's what wine is about. You know, It's not just about sitting down and having a lovely glass of wine at night. That's the outcome of what it is. But the big thing about wine versus a beverage is that you actually sit down and share information and learn and expand what you're doing. The difference between drinking Labatt's Blue or a craft beer is the exact same thing. You want to drink something different all the time. You want to have a conversation point around it. You want to share information and you want to grow and nurture it. At the end of the day, I look at myself, I make food. Wine is food to me. It's not a beverage. You know, you can sit and drink it all you want, but at the end of the day, I want that to sit down, and I want it to emulsify and match that little crudité that we have sitting in front of us right now. And it should actually work well. If it's actually sitting there, and it's cloying, and it's sweet, it's not doing its job. One of the big mandates for us is, on our back labels, I can't wait until we get the food standards put onto wine labels. Because mm. it's going to call bullshit out on all the big boys. Mm. You know, this manufactured winemaking that started out in Australia about adding back grape concentrate, it's not good for our health. It's not what it's about.
1: You, you, know? you, you want to see ingredients on the back of a Absolutely. Right on. Absolutely. You know,
2: I also call bullshit on organic wines in Australia. We don't need to have an organic standard because we don't use that much chemical use. We don't need those bases. It's formulated out of Europe. I follow organic theory. I follow biodynamic systems. We actually act from a sustainable input point. So, what we take out, I want to make sure I put back. So, from the from the chemical nomenclature of our, of our soil with the nitrogen that's drawn out of it, we actually invested into a kelp forest off of Kangaroo Island. You know, that's the point that we're actually trying to help work with peat soils to actually bring kelp back, put that nitrogen back into the soil. It's actually a, a CO2 sink, which I don't really care about from production level, but for our CO two footprint, a hectare of kelp is like twenty two hectares of rainforest, as far as I understand. So that's actually beneficial in our overall output. Okay, so um,
1: sorry, I have a follow up. I need the follow up here.
2: <laughs> like the, the way you're talking
1: about, like all all of the uh, agricultural practices, the organic, the biodynamic stuff. Like that's a lot of stuff that is is really these are really powerful marketing tools for premium and ultra-premium wine brands.
2: And you nailed it on the head. It's marketing. And, that industry, and that's it. That's but,
1: not but, what I want to do. But, 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 reg- but like, who in your mind is the ideal customer for Zante's footsteps? Because you're selling your wines for $20 a bottle in this market. And I understand they're going up a little bit. But these are supremely affordable wines.
2: Uh, at the end of the day, where our business is, it's not about actually having wine sitting around. I get it harvested every year. I want you to drink it. My whole ethos is that in today's wine styles and the market, where we are now compared to 70 years ago, you don't need to age wine anymore. If, if those producers that want to age wine, want to age wine, so be it. I'm not going to do that because storing wine costs money, does it not? Wine sitting around costs more. What I want people to do is be able to buy a bottle of wine with confidence, knowing exactly what they're going to get in that bottle and have a, a great time with it. Have a smile. Don't get too complex. You know, analogy I always use about myself is I sort of look at myself like Dr. Seuss I write books for kids but if you really read a Dr. Seuss book and get deep into it, there's a lot more going on and to do something subtly with wine like that, where it is about the viticulture and the winemaking where you don't have all this winemaking artifact clouding the fruit to me that's a higher skill set that I've developed over the years rather than um, just masking it with a bunch of fresh oak.
0: So just to Really quickly, yep. according to a master of wine who works for Wakefield, yep. um, he said that no bottle of wine is ever better than when it's 15 years old. So that's just what he said. Now, we can argue that all day long, um, I think, but that's what his, his oh, theory okay. was.
2: I've t- you I've t- go right ahead and you can age my wine for 15 years, and we'll yeah. sit down and you go, man, it doesn't look a lot different what I put on. We opened 24- 2004... Sure, as Viognier about six weeks ago, and honestly, side by side, there's a bit of bottle evolution. I, th- I think the screw cap
0: actually plays a part in that.
2: Absolutely. Massive. So I will never use a cork. Um, so let's
0: get on to some of these shirts yes, yes, Because I'm very excited about trying them. So there's four in the glass, so I guess we're going to start with the one on the yeah, left-hand right. side.
2: So left is Lake Doctor. Okay. So we're going to work from the south, which is Langhorne Creek.
0: This is Where like, about? it's got an
1: intense salinity... On the, on the nose, I wasn't expecting.
2: Well, this is basically less than, excuse me, 20 meters above sea level. It's a floodplain um, viticultural region. big thing that I love about Langhorn Creek was it wasn't just all fruit. You know, there's that lovely sort of olive tapenade, a bit of that emoliated forest floor, wet leaf characteristic to it. Blackwood bridge. Yep. Well, the black licorice actually comes out from the ferments, and you'll see that across most of my wines. There is a little bit of, especially as it sits in the glass, being open a little longer, fennel or that licorice comes out quite characteristically, and that's because of the timing of when I harvest my fruit. Being a little earlier harvested versus later, I don't want it to get really skinsy and baggy and start to denature. We look at seed desiccation and flavor development, so we look for a bit higher acid profile in our wines a little bit punchier, fresher, bright fruit. Is there,
1: is there a fine line to have to walk with making sure the fruit's ripe and holding Always. that acid?
2: Always. you got to walk a fine line. As, as Johnny says, you know, walk the fine line. It's finding that point. It's understanding it. It's spending time going through the vineyard, tasting fruit, looking for seed desiccation and flavor profiles popping in. Um, one of our vineyards in McLaren Vale, when the fruit actually hits the flavor profile, it actually looks like fresh roasted coffee bean when you pop open the berry. Mm. You smell it and go, wow, that's cool. That's the little things, nuances that really make what we do what we do. Um, So Lake Doctor, we actually do a co-fermentation with a bit of Viognier on this. Still two five-ton open ferments using the skins from our organic Viognier. And then we actually blend that down and stretch it. So it would be less than 1% in that final blend. I almost
0: think a little more Viognier might add a little bit more florality I mean you're the winemaker
1: you're there, is, there,
0: is, is, there is definitely a florality to that to that to that wine and it mostly comes through I the want t- more, more uh, I want more I don't
2: for me it's that balance the, what it does is it adds back an acid rail Shiraz is about a surfboard you know you need that fine point you need the rails that come down the end and you need that finish the tail is the most important thing about a Shiraz is that finish at the end that finishes nice and clean and rounded. This has a lovely acid rail down the middle and adds a bit more food friendliness to it. If I did that to any of the other Shiraz, I don't think it would work out as well as it does with that because the Shiraz has some masculine secondary character to it. And this adds that spectrum of stone fruit or, you know, a little bit of floral load to it. So then number two, McLaren Vale, our Chocolate Factory. My favorite. Now, Chocolate Factory, those two wines, by the way, they're about, you know, Thirty-three percent of our entire production.
1: Wow! Well, a chocolate factory comes out to the LCD. I think it's been two or three times two, over two the past times year. Two at
2: the moment, and three next year, hopefully. So, the um, big thing sorry. about chocolate factory is McLaren Vale is Mediterranean by climate. We have perfect diurnal temperature. We got there is no such thing as soil profile in the region. We got over a thousand different matrices of soil that we've actually mapped and had a geological survey. The thing for me is trying to get that real sense of place where. The fruit ripens lovely, retains nicely nice long string tannin formation, and therefore it's more milk chocolate. So what happened when I first moved there and we were fermenting? If you didn't write down the batch of fruit that was coming in at ferments, it all looks the same. So what the guy told me was, stick it on your palate organoleptically. If it feels like milk chocolate, it's from a belt. If it's dark chocolate, it's from somewhere else. Just it's really funny. I've never chocolate.
1: I've never been able to put my finger on that. My um, my wife is a pastry chef. Yep. and she loves dark chocolate I prefer milk chocolate like right forever and I just uh, I told you off the air like this is a wine that I have quite a bit of in my in my cellar because I just want to covet it like every time I see this on the shelf of the LCD it makes me Thank excited you. this wine in particular was the one where the questions I'm asking you about like how and why you do what you do it's just like
2: you know. so you'll see that there's not a lot of oak there's No, not a lot of secondary there and perfect big, balance with
1: acid, like it's got that Australian ripeness, but that acid pulls it back, that it's not over the top, it's not jammy. It's like a, it's like looking at a perfect high definition photo. You know, uh,
0: my mother loves this wine. I, I know always, you said that. You, are you not a fan, Michael? Mm. Um, I like uh, the the Nemesis has always been one of my favorites. Choc- the chocolate factory, I find is 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 really yummy. Uh, it hits that, uh, you know, uh, sweet fruit note. Should we jump to ahead me. to
1: Nemesis then and, and uh, come back? Or guys- sure, if you want. Yeah, well, I, I, but,
0: but I remember my mother phones me up and she's like, I just opened a bottle of wine. She's like so shocked that she opened it, I think. But she opens one every night. But she's like, I just opened this bottle of wine. It's called the, I don't know what it's called. It's got this label and she starts to, and then she goes, give me a second. And she runs down and, or wherever she did, and she goes, it's this chocolate factory thing. And I went, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's Sante's mother. Because can I get more? I go probably every six months on
2: <laughs> The big thing about McLaren Bell for me is it 's almost hydroponic you know there's no influence of sense of place the The impact that McLaren Bell has on that is its purity of fruit, that lovely long string tannin development and one of the telltales for me is by the way we 're actually harvesting that fruit, that sort of clotted cream texture that you get is actually the alcohols playing in that fruit. Mm. So there's not a, if I extract it more, it would be masked in there a little bit more. And this actually holds a little bit more of that lovely glycerol roundness that's balanced by the acid.
1: So Michael said his preference is baron baroness. Baron
2: which is my bross, it's the yeah. very last one. Yeah. And, and this
1: and this one it 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 has great acid.
0: So we're, but, not, we're, so we're just going to skip over the hills or a lot? Is no, that we'll, we'll, we'll come
1: back to right. the hills. Okay. But so, like okay. it's it hits a lot. This wine is not subtle.
2: There's nothing subtle about the Brassa Valley. <laughs> um, I hate Brassa And yet here we are, vehemently. And I never used to make it. The reason the name Baron von Nemesis, because is everywhere I travel, they go, oh, do you have a Brassa Schrez? And I go... No, I'm from McLaren Bell. We make on Creek and McLaren Bell. Oh, do you have a brass res? Eventually, I gave in in 2008. And I started to make this in a style that I wanted to make. And if you look at the label, it's the lovely little, you know, yes, brightly. Your label. Top. I do want to talk
1: about your labels in, so it, that's, in a minute. So that's
2: Tank Girl. That's where I got my inspiration. I want Tank, Tank Girl. You know, I want that.
1: The movie, or the movie, or the graphic novel?
2: Yeah, both. Okay. <laughs> You know, for me, it's. I wanted to make something that had a bit of feminine edge to it. You can't make elegant out of Barossa. It just doesn't work. It's 500 kilometers inland. It's a warm inland growing district. I don't care what all the boxheads that live up there say. It, it's just this big, bold, brooding. And to me, the, the fruit, even with this, with the way we harvest it, there's still a bit of that desiccated, stewed, Christmas pudding, spice, and totally. dark plums. Yep. And that is the regional profile of Barossa Shreks.
1: Is, is it a challenge to hold acid with this? Is, is, or, or, what, what is the biggest challenge with...
2: Big
1: time. Is That is the biggest challenge?
2: In, in the Barossa? Absolutely. And is, is, and, and is,
1: is that why and, it's your nemesis?
2: It's a nemesis because honestly I, uh, I make it because I'm making wine for myself for an education point, but if someone said today if, if my business partner being a CPA that she is turned around to me and said I had to stop making one wine this is the first one I'd pull the pin on and then she would tell me no because this is actually one of our top five selling wines
0: see, so
2: from a personal standpoint a passion point it would walk away from a commercial standpoint I'm going to keep persisting with what we do and wh- what this is is a single site one vineyard one grower that we deal with and Rocco's been doing this for four generations now he is absolutely the most pedantic viticulturalist I've ever met in my life I love him he pulls leaves and bugs off of singular vines um, and I know I got pristine fruit and every year when I go to harvest it he yells at me to tell me to leave it longer and every year every year without fail we're harvesting it tomorrow and he would literally park his quad in front of the thing to stop the truck from coming in to get the fruit like and it's never going to change
0: I love this story, I love this story so much see I, I, I really like this wine, and I I'm I'm unabashedly a, a real fan of uh, wines by two hands, and they are Barossa, They're beautiful, and they are. I think they really, I don't know what they do, but they they just seem to be those really lovely, lush Barossa, but they have finesse to them. They're structured, and you have developed this at a lower price point. I mean, yeah, twenty five <laughs> bucks, twenty five bucks a bottle, and like it's it's a well made. But two hands, but two hands. Like I mean, you have to get into their single vineyards to get into their high end stuff. But even, like they they also have a, you know the twenty five dollar range that, that's here, and it's and it's lovely. And and, and another and one's Torbrek. Torbrek is also. You know what I mean? Good. Like they both make
2: great wines. So right. so
0: you you have also hit that mark for me, and that's right. why I, I like this wine is because I'm I'm happy. I, I like two hands, but I love this wine as well. Happy to see the Barossa. Um, Yes, I understand that they are big. They're ballsy. They're they're bruisers. They're 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 not always finesseful. But you do have a finesse. This is, this is big. It is ballsy. But there is a backbone of finesse that makes me happy.
1: Oh yes, I'm the not,
0: finesse of Tank Girl. But, <laughs> but but there's a finesse to this wine that makes me happy because it's not just that big fruit bomb.
2: It's not gloopy. It's,
0: yeah, it's not. I'm not drinking jam. And you
2: can drink this yeah. at the end of the day.
0: The tannin is soft,
1: and it's you know, it's easy. It is relatively easy to drink, but it's for me the lack of uh, the lack of subtlety is making. I'm just.
0: I'm and, not. I think there's. I think so, there's
2: definitely the subtlety here. We have nailed the regionality of Shiraz in this conversation in the last three yeah. minutes. So because reg- this is exactly why I do this. That's why there's. Four wines there. They are my Quadrup. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean that's, a, that's the thing happy. is. Sometimes I I, th- I think happy. there
0: is su- I, I think there is subtlety in that wine, okay. and I think you have to look for it. And as a wine drinker, uh, uh, sorry, as a as a uh, a wine writer, and somebody who likes to delve a little deeper into his glass of wine, I can find finesse. Whereas, uh, and I can find subtlety. Whereas there are other people who would be like, no, I just like it because it's got that you know, huge raspberry,
2: huge... And there's that analogy this is, of Dr. Seuss. At the beginning, yeah. it makes you giggle because you read it, but if you get deeper into it, there's some meaning and some purpose.
1: And then there's the fact that that might be the most Michael Pincus comment ever about finding... I do see the point that you're making, but it's just like the label, hearing you talk about the label, the picture in your head, hearing the story of the inspiration of Tank Girl, and it's just like... And also knowing Michael and Michael... I'm, this is not meant as an insult as well, but it's just like...
2: That's a good
1: one. Oh, to, I'm it's sure. It's got, it's got, it's got <laughs> finesse, but it's got like the finesse of a hammer, you know? It's... I don't know. If you can find a finesse in a hammer, then, then yes, this wine has been finesse one, but I'm going to put it right. in your head one so this day.
2: Now we're going to go into Hills to The Hills, are alive. yeah. So Hills Are Alive is the latest um, expenditure <laughs> in my life. Uh, I, I went back to the ANZ to borrow money to buy this little piece of dirt. When this vineyard was planted in 1979, after Seppelt's sold the Penfolds, Carl Seppelt, the eldest son, went up to where we are, which used to be the Eden Valley, bought 500 hectares, and he planted the very first Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Shiraz, up in this high elevation, 400 meters above sea level. In 1990, it sold back to Southcorp. And that's for that decade, they used it to produce their Yutana projects. In 2004, I met the owner who had bought it off of Treasury and was dry-growing the vineyard at that stage. So our Sauvignon Blanc comes from this vineyard. And I actually negotiated a deal to buy a 200-acre parcel off of it with the water infrastructure. And to me, it was because of this. When I tasted, and I worked in South Australia with many many vineyards when I tasted the Shiraz off this block it teleported me to the northern Rome it was Hermitage it was Saint Joseph it was this amazing wet slate almost wild rocket you know elephant fennel it wasn't just Shiraz to me this isn't Shiraz this is Syrah and with that you know I'm really trying to highlight in the vineyard itself there's a lot of wild arugula arugula which is what we call rocket. You know, there's a lot of elephant fennel that grow on the property, and those. I like think better. We, we need to find a
1: way to bring that here. Rocket's a better way to describe
0: it. So this this is this would be my second favorite of his. Shiraz always has, or ever since he started making it, I tried. That, I think for the first time last year. You've had her literally inverted. Correct. You like the, the chocolate factory? Chocolate, I, I... chocolate Lake Hills. Uh, oh, mine would be Baroness, or, or my favorite in that order: Nemesis Hills, Chocolate Lake. Yeah, we're literally
2: inverted. And the funny thing is, those two wines, my limited releases, they'll definitely see a little bit more winemaking artifact or oak on them. There's a little bit more structure and depth to them. They are a little bit more concentrated, I think. These are a lot more acid-driven, bright, fruit-driven, you know. I'd say masculine. These are feminine. So there there you go. Masculine and feminine. But the beauty about it is... No matter what mood you're in, you can just keep swapping them around. And that's the beauty. That's why we've worked so well with the LCBO is we get all four of these wines coming through. And every time they come through, there's a different experience. I think it's they're also similar, but they're different. Yeah, I think it's also I,
1: clear to, to just – I think you and I are in agreement on this as well to the people who are listening to this. Even though Michael and I don't agree on which ones we prefer, A, for the price point, B, for the fact that they're good wines. If any of these wines
0: showed up at our house – we would not be unhappy. If yeah, you'd so like that. to send us over somehow, <laughs> you know, don't don't feel uh, ashamed to send them. Yeah, I think
1: so. We've got three wines. Don't ever feel ashamed. We have got three wines left to um, for, to rock
0: through. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about your Pinot Noir.
1: So, yeah.
2: we'll just
0: yeah, we got uh, it. And I and I look while they're pouring. Uh, Andre, I understand why the Chocolate Factory is is a, is an appealing wine. You know, I, I yeah, know, just I know, like what, I know. I understand why Baroness is an appealing wine. I know what my mother likes. Uh, okay. So um, she she doesn't want to have to uh, struggle with uh, with a lot of tannins. She doesn't want to struggle she wants she wants lots of fruit, she wants lots of you know, mouthfeel, she wants lots of pleasure that way. And look, I get it, chocolate factory delivers all of that. Like yep. just all of it. Crack the cap. She keeps it open for like a week. She continues to drink it, she continues to enjoy it. Um, and I and I get it. The Lake Doctor to me. Uh, I like I'm, the salinity in it. Yeah, I do like this, that that salinity, but it's not kind of what I'm looking for in in Australian Shiraz. I like seeing something different, uh, but I I I'm not I'm not that I, I that, it's 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 not I, I I think I can find that elsewhere, and it's not what I'm looking for in Australia. So. Uh, it's why it's my least favorite. It's because it feels like I can find that elsewhere. Where the what other do you elsewhere? where elsewhere? Uh, probably in the Rhone Valley, you can probably find something similar to that. Um, I don't know. I think the I think the ripeness of it definitely
1: screams Australia for me. The thing I like about it is the acid, because I'm very rarely opening a bottle of wine without food in my house.
0: That's okay. So that's, that's That becomes the difference because I will open the wine first. Whereas, uh, and then I will make dinner, and it never has to, to coincide, let's say. Whereas I know you think food-wine pairing. I'm like, I think wine first, and then it really doesn't matter. I have, I have paired so many wines that do not go with egg roll in a bowl, with egg roll in a bowl, uh, a, a recipe you taught me, yep. that, that um, it should never go together. But when you make egg roll in a bowl and I go to your house, you actually say this wine will go with it. Yes. Where I bring over a wine that you've told me you're making egg roll in a bowl and I bring over a Zinfandel. And you're like, this will never go with this. And And I think that's kind of ironic that it's it's a default setting in my
1: house because I do open wine and food. And when I put food together in, in my house, that is something that is front of mind. But I've been on this podcast talking about how I think
0: wine and food are kind of BS I'm missing a wine but that's fine um, oh jeez. okay <laughs> he's not allowed to have certain wines because you'll know he doesn't like them so uh, hey, let's, let's, dig, let's dive right into the Pinot here because it's actually a little
1: a little surprising
0: well, it's it's light. It uh, and well, we've, lo- we've lost Brad while he goes to pour wine for other people. Yeah, we're, we're
1: actually in a room full of very well behaved people who've been silent through the whole thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this is your, this is your Pinot. Yeah, t- tell me. T- <laughs> so, so this, this is, is, is that
2: vineyard we were just talking about. So this is, this is the second
1: Australian Pinot I've had in two in two weeks. Right, and both of them have been incredibly surprising. Just because, like, I I. I am gun shy on warm climate Pinot from my first trip to California, where every producer will prou- in Sonoma and Napa will proudly pour you their Pinot from uh, from the Russian River, just be like, "Oh, this is so Burgundian in style." And they pour it in your glass, and it's fifteen percent
0: alcohol and a complete fruit bomb.
2: All right. So number one, Look,
0: you can't call Meomi Pinot. <laughs> no, it's capsule. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually it's Infidel and, and Syrah. Anyways, but well, right, so we digress. One,
2: what is That's it? one of my pet peeves.
0: What's the one name of, of your Pinot, first of
2: all? Go what? make Burgundy. Yeah. Go to Burgundy and make Burgundy. Yeah. I can't make Burgundy in Australia. This is the very first plantings of Pinot Noir in South Australia. Well,
1: you said so you worked at Argyle, right? I did. You know, the, there's a little well, bit I, of... Interest. I
2: dragged hoses in Argyle. Okay, well, there, uh,
1: there's there's definitely... If, if I had to blind taste this, in a heartbeat, I would say Oregon. So this, this is... Are you kidding this me? This is
2: Dijon clone. <laughs> I'm, I'm 777 not kidding seven clone Pinot Noir. And it was brought over specifically in Australia. They wanted to make table wines, but they were making sparklings out of it at that stage. Okay. So Dijon clone to me doesn't have a lot of fruit to it. It's all that secondary base.
1: A lot of floral. Triple seven pretty floral too.
2: Yeah, very floral, very secondary. You get a little bit of crab apple, a bit of stewed rhubarb. You know, it's not the the, the 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 Bernard clones that are big and plush plums and cherries and things. You know, Central Otago to me isn't Pinot either. Like, that to me is like, you know, big brambly, jammy Beaujolais Grand Cru Like, it, Pinot to me is about acid rail and elegance and finesse. And if that's what I get out of the vineyard, that's what I get out of it. So, this is the second vintage I made of the Pinot on the property. Um, the first vintage, I did the traditional Oregonian you know, whole cluster ferment, and I just ended up blending it away over the last seven years. So you hear to-
1: him say Oregonian after you just called me crazy for
0: saying this
2: is very yeah, Oregonian
0: in style. I don't get Oregon. I don't get Oregon.
1: Maybe you need to drink more Oregon
2: Pinot. I just had an Arath. <laughs> I had an Arath the other day, so I so. But- I mean, I'm actually sitting one table away from a very uh, well versed Burgundian consumer, so I'll try and rein myself in too much i don't i don't make wines that represent styles of places i'm not trying to emulate i love no you're working with pinot noir that. and i need to work with that fruit and express the best wines i possibly can so Should to be- me this showcases that lovely savory tone of what we can get out of our vineyard again you'll see the same complex of flavors that's similar to what you had in the hills Real Life. so there's wild rocket you know there's that peppery undertone little bit of that, you know, fresh herbal leaf to it.
1: This is robust. There there is a,
2: so alcohol has got to be, like, what, 13,
1: 13
2: 13.5? I honestly don't know, because I don't care about alcohol.
0: So you said this was the first planting of Pinot where? In South Australia. So
2: McWilliams brought Pinot Noir into Australia, into the Hunter Valley in 1975. And then in 1979, Brian Crozer planted it in the Piccadilly Valley, and this was planted in... The northern part, which was Eden Valley at that time. So these
0: are 1979 yeah, plantings. On own rootstock. On own rootstock. Yep. Yeah. This is gorgeous.
2: So for me, it's just trying to, and Pinot is a beast to work with because there's nothing I can do to manipulate it's, it. So
1: is this going through the LCDO?
2: <laughs> no. This is actually available through crew wine merchants through consignment for restaurants. What's the
1: What's the pricing on it? $37.95.
0: I, I will give you this, Andre. It is a very pretty Pinot, and it definitely is. Uh, more, more it is very, it is much more Pinot esque than you usually get out of um, uh, out of Australia, which you know just always seems to be another jammy uh, fruit. Uh, so there, there is there is some finesse. Again, I hate to just keep using that word because no, it I sounds sh- like what they're so all using. It. So, Brad, But why like does finesse?
2: Uh, look, if if I tell you my Shiraz is seventy five dollars, you're going to go. That's pretty pricey. If I tell you my Pinot 75 bucks, you go, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Pinot has no ceiling. It's also what we, I refer to. Um, there, there's this winemaker in Australia that basically lost his winery because he went nuts trying to chase clones and different barrel harmonies and making Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, we will all die as wine consumers. We will drink Pinot Noir because it's skeletal. It's the skeleton. That showcases that vintage right through it. We had a warm spot in 2017 into you know about three or four weeks into the growing period it had a long cool hanging end pinot noir is a skeleton you can't mask it you can't use winemaking artifact to hide it it is it just shows it all you know um it's like the king's new clothes it's just out there so for me grape pinot is actually made in a vineyard and it's exemplified by winemakers and it's that thing that we will always sit down and look at, that I love to enjoy. You know, okay. it's the multitude of it. Next to it, you've actually got our going left. First, or we'll go, now
0: we're going uh,
1: left to right, right, right to left. Right. You guys are. You yeah. hold you, you hold your hand up, and when it's an L. That oh, means left. is that okay. how it works? So this, this is
2: splitting hairs. That's what it's called. Yep, it's the one over there with the two rabbits on the front label.
1: Oh, that's funny. A hair like H A R E just yeah, so is it two hairs? Yeah,
2: and. It was because when we actually put this wine together, this is Tempranillo Grenache, very traditional Italian or Spanish, sorry, I should say, take on the two grape varieties. This
1: um, is also not a subtle wine.
2: Again, it's it's about showing that that harmony blends are where winemakers get to actually showcase a bit of their their penchant and what they want to put together. For me. The reason we call it splitting hairs is Marty, who's my winemaker and myself, spent six weeks going back and forth arguing over a one percent difference in the blend component. And that's exactly what it is. It's where we want to end up with that. To me, it's that harmony between when one variety starts and the other one stops. So you can't see it. But how, how we've did got you, perfect
1: layers. How did you resolve the one percent dispute?
2: Don't call
0: that. He's the owner, <laughs> for God's sake. So of course <laughs> he won. Coin, coin, coin flip, rock, paper, scissors, or would
2: nope. no he's not s- even say. He's the one he's the one paying the bank. He wins. And, and at the end of the day, even if I won, he would have done whatever he wanted afterwards. <laughs>
1: oh, that's hilarious.
2: Okay, so he won. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Our Temper Neo. Temper Neo in South Australia is a ma- magnificent beast. It's unfortunately, Temper Neo, as we would know, translates to early reckoning. Not in South Australia. It's actually later ripening. Um, it can hang for quite a while, actually. So for me, the vintage variation with tempranillo is we can get that like that really dried straw, dried bay leaf character, or we can get that really lovely fresh MDMA oil sort of crushed or oregano. Oregano, how do we say it in Canada again? Oregano. Oregano, we say it normal, thank God. Oregano, you know, oregano oil that, you know, it's lively. It's not dried and hard or bitter. It's got that lovely fresh herbal edge. And the Grenache just adds flesh and, and punch and roundness to the palate. What what why it? is you tem- ripe in, in Australia? Just because. Hang on. It's the way it relates with Mother Nature. The question that came
1: from Guillaume, who's also at this tasting, is why does Tempranillo ripen later in Australia? And that's okay, Guillaume. You're, uh, you're part of this now.
2: I would love, I would actually love to understand why, Guillaume, because we planted it thinking, great, we got another early ripening thing. As we all know, with winemaking, it's trying to plant a diversity of varieties that come in at different times, so you're not doing what we actually call bathtub vintages, which tend to happen more than often. A bathtub vintage basically means anything that holds liquid, you ferment it in, because everything happens at once. And um, yeah, a tempranillo can hang out there for ages. It's just that lag point, you know, again, you look at seed desiccation, you wait for that flavor point to kick in, and it just takes weeks and weeks and weeks sometimes where that boysenberry, to me, our tempranillo, when it ripens, it's boysenberry and fresh tea leaf. You know, it's got that real black tea leaf character to it I, get, I get and a beautiful
0: seam of raspberry that just goes right through this like it's a little raspberry like that. jam that's just and, and I never realized that uh, Grenache um, is, is like almost pure raspberry until uh, one came through the LCBO uh, I would to say a few years ago and uh, Grenache is, is, a, is a lighter grape than a lot of people believe it is. No, we make it like warm climate Pinot Noir. It
2: looks like Grenache.
0: It's really light, and everybody thinks that it's, you know, because they see it from Spain. It's this big, red, heavy thing. No. But when you get it from Australia, and I don't know why it's Australia, but I mean, it's, it's just like it's a pure raspberry jam. It's
2: such a beauty grape. If you pull Grenache properly, I can actually do it in stainless steel, bright and light, linear acidity, and it's juicy. For us, when we've got, you know, 35, 40-degree days for eight months of the year, I want a lighter-bodied red wine. Like, for me, when I make Grenache in Spain, in that lovely, lighter-bodied style, you know, the Spaniards put their Grenache on ice. Chill it down, drink it cold, yeah. go for it. That's what it should be. Yeah, it's so it's one step up. Yeah. You know, to me, Grenache from Australia is almost like drinking Beaujolais Nouveau. And then finally, the this, last wine.
0: this last wine is... This
2: is our blackberry patch. So this is one of the four pillars of our business. So this is a Cabernet on the label. and the back label says Cab Tempranillo. So Cabernet to me is all about structure. Shiraz is the surfboard. Cabernet is about structure. And it's about getting that lovely balance. And the difference this is, is I sort of paid homage to the wines I had from Navarra, where they use a bit of Tempranillo in their Cabernet. And what it does is it actually stretches the donut out. Makes it a little bit more feminine, elegant style, rather than a big masculine, gloopy, you know.
1: Well, and it's, and it's tamed that eucalyptus note that I ex- expect when I open up an Australian cab. Like, this is like. So it's, we do not
2: harvest any of our fruit within the nine no, meters no. of gum tree. Now, I, I, we don't get that companion planting, and that's where I find the exacerbation of that eucalyptus.
1: Herb. I mean, the, the eucalyptus isn't off-putting. It's just something as a consumer I expect when I open the open it is the bottle. And, and I mean, oh, that's, and that, I mean, that's fantastic. because yeah. like when I taste this, it's just like it's a really yeah. well-made, affordable cab soap. And even though you see the label says Cabernet uh, fleurier.
2: so Fleurier is the greater geographic area that contains. The McLaren Vale, the Langhorn
1: Creek, and the oh, there it is, Tempranillo at the bottom. Sorry, I, I didn't read far enough down on the no. on the label, but I mean the Tempranillo. I'm not getting a ton of Tempranillo influence on this. I mean, this tastes just like really well-made Cabernet Sauvignon.
2: The big thing about what Tempranillo does to Cabernet is it takes that donut tannin and stretches it out. So instead of using Merlot, that a lot of Australians do, that fills the palate up and makes it bigger. The Tempranillo actually takes those little rough, jagged, short-string tannins that you can get in Cabernet, and as you had in the wine beforehand, that lovely long-string tannin, that's what Tempranillo is doing to it. It's stretching it out, making longer chains of tannin, and at the very end, it's dusty and finishes off with that lovely, um, you know, bay leaf Tempranillo tannin, but it's not sticking out.
1: I'd agree with that. Um, We have been talking for quite a while. This is definitely going to be one of our longer episodes of the podcast uh, so just before we wrap up, I want to talk to you about your labels. Sure. I know you're – it sounds like you're really invested in the winemaking and in the, in the vineyards. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about wine labels, and I said when I picked up my first bottle of chocolate factory, it was because of the label. Who does your labels?
2: So the names and the stories and the work that you see came out of my brain – That's awesome. But the artist that we have is Bianca Smith. So when we sat down to do the rework, Bianca's actually a a portraitist. She actually does, you know, $50,000 boardroom paintings of CEOs and dignitaries and things. And when we asked her to do this for me, um, us... She jumped on it and loved it. So over two days, we did exactly what we're doing here. We just sat down and drank the wine. I told her the story. I told her the imagery in my head of what I saw. And she pretty much nailed everything except for the Baron von Nemesis because she made it look too soft and cushy. So the original artwork that she did is actually sitting above our coffee machine and our wine bar, and it has this woman looking off forlorn in the distance. Same outfit and stuff, but just really whimsy and i went no i want tank girl and went back so we actually had an artist sit for her who did that and the violet beauregard things like that so for me again you know they're 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 my wine children i gave them names we've given them faces now to me they each have a personality that i'm trying to exude and nurture and, and expand and there's a family thumbprint that's in there too how important are the labels to you to Gosh. telling the story Absolutely massive because that's what people pick up first. You know, Melissa who who works for a crew who's our fingers on the ground here, she explained it best. You know, People pick the wine up now because they're interested in the package and then they drink it and they're so impressed about the quality that they keep coming back for more. And at the end of the day, I guess that's the, the whole thing I could ever ask for.
0: I have to be honest, I have no idea why my mother picked up the bottle. She never mentioned the label.
2: That's hilarious.
1: Brad, I really, really... Uh, well, I, I guess the Crew Wine Merchants for inviting us to Stratus to, to record this podcast. I know Melissa had a big hand in making sure this happens, and I, I know it's because she knows that I was a, a fan of Chocolate Factory, but to hear you tell all these stories, I really appreciate you giving us the time.
2: Well, I, I thank you for the time. I mean, this is why I travel the world. I try and spend my time spreading my passion one person at a time. Well, thank so, you for thank showing
0: you. showing that, uh, that Shiraz lineup that really is... I guess I never realized what you were doing with that, Shiraz. But thank you very much for that.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Andre, probably some
0: of our best content, probably some of our best questions. Uh, I think sometimes we geeked out a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, but um, real fun to talk to Brad there.
1: I mean, it's it, it's it was fascinating for me because I know that Yellowtail has been such a punching bag uh, for me. On this podcast, even though on, out of the other side of my mouth, I tell people drink what they drink what they like, but you know, I left that interview. But don't drink that. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I left. Uh, I left that interview feeling profoundly inspired, and you know, it um, it always makes me feel energized. We're like twelve year into the twelve years into this career, almost thirteen years into this career writing about wine. I can still meet people from regions, learn things about regions, but also meet people from passionate people from regions who, you know, I just feel are bringing out the best of the wine industry, you know, making terroir-driven Australian Shiraz that is beautifully balanced, that isn't overdone, that speaks to the climate, that speaks to the terroir, and putting it in my hands for under $25. um, I don't know, like, I, I, I get serious, like, Thomas Batchelder vibes from Brad Ray and what he's doing, you know?
0: Well, I you know, I found it interesting, uh even after we finished recording, that uh we weren't just being uh controversial with each other, that we literally were almost polar opposites of the Shiraz that we liked. But I mean that I found surprise like surprise I thought at some point I go, he's he's just messing with me to be you know, con- controversial. And then you finished, we're like, no, I seriously like this. And I'm like, I seriously like this. And we're like, all right. But I mean, that was a cool
1: thing, though, is we could leave a tasting like that and all four wines were of a high quality. Like, this isn't a situation where, for people who listen to this podcast a lot, you know, often you and I will differ quite a bit on things like, I think Chardonnay specifically. But, like, this was a situation where uh, I think we were looking at for the for the Shiraz the Shiraz flight anyways we were looking at a table of four star wines across the board
0: yeah uh, like i just i just wrote up the notes from that tasting uh, and it was amazing how uh, like each and every one of those wines uh was a four star and above wine so when we're talking about i liked this i liked that it's not i disliked. It was,
1: I preferred, you know,
0: I preferred this
1: wine. 100%. All right. I'm sure people are sick of the sound of our voices today. Um, Especially
0: when they probably sounded like this.
1: Oh, shut up, Michael. I really feel bad about this. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca at Andre Wine Review on social media.
0: I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can find me as the grape guy. And as Michael Pingus, take your pick. Andre, I have but one thing to say to you. What's that? Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.